Welcome back to Historian Splaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube, and other platforms. And if by any chance you can help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. For the past few months, I've been talking about events mainly in the 1500s. So the Protestant and Catholic Reformations, the Price Revolution and popular rebellions, and so on. And I'm going to move forward a little bit now and talk about the general picture, the sort of large overview picture of the next century, the 17th century. And specifically, I'm going to talk about the idea that historians call the general crisis of the 17th century. So national historians working in different fields, France or Britain or Germany, have long known about conflicts, internal conflicts, riots, rebellions, mutinies, as well as wars that took place in the 1600s, and especially in the mid-1600s. But it took a long time for scholars to begin to piece a larger picture together. And beginning with Eric Hobsbawm in a famous series of articles in the 1950s, historians began to speak of a general crisis of the 17th century. So for seemingly various, maybe unrelated reasons, economic, political, religious, there was a kind of rolling wave of conflict and instability that shook all parts of Central and Western Europe in the 1600s and especially intensely in the mid-1600s, in the 1640s or 50s. There was, you might say, a, a climax of this Europe-wide crisis. In more recent years, scholars have been able to hone in more specifically on the particular root causes that seem to have led to this crisis and that basically undermined and broke down whatever social and political order had been holding the peace in most of Europe through the 1500s. The various political and diplomatic alliances, the internal balances of power that had been developed in, in England and France and the Holy Roman Empire. All of this was disrupted after about 1600 and led to this severe crisis and a period of widespread economic hardship, hunger, famine, disease, internal rebellion, rioting, pillaging, and large-scale wars. So it was a generally fun time, as you can tell. And the particular causes that we can pick out and focus on as clearly irreducibly important in this picture of the 17th century are one, religious, and two, environmental. So on the religious level, there was intractable division between the new camps that had been created in the wake of the Reformation. So as I said, there emerged a pattern of almost a kind of cold war between Catholic and Protestant states, and sometimes between Catholic and Protestant parties within certain states like France. At various times over the course of the 1500s, one side or the other thought that 
they had a shot at ultimately winning this conflict, right? Protestants initially believed that they would successfully reform the Western Church from top to bottom. They didn't see themselves as schismatics breaking away and forming a separate camp. In the same way, Catholics tended to think that they would somehow address and defeat the outbreak of heresy that was the Protestant Reformation in their eyes. Neither side necessarily thought that what was going to happen was centuries of conflict or coexistence between two different opposing branches of the Western Church. But because neither side could really win a decisive victory, rather they settled into this holding pattern. And by about 1600, we can see there was increasing frustration and exhaustion and an increasing hope for some sort of radical new departure, a new source of knowledge or authority that could adjudicate the dispute between Catholics and Protestants, or some sort of new order, new social and religious system that would enable them to coexist or would enable one side or the other to win out. There was a despair in this sort of tit-for-tat, back-and-forth tug-of-war along the borders and within royal courts across Europe. So this was one reason, this intractable division and the sort of frustration and, in some quarters, radicalization that came from this unending division. This we can see as one basic reason for the crisis of the 17th century. The other, as I said, is environmental or more specifically climatic. So the climate of Europe became comparatively warm in the high and late Middle Ages. And I've talked about this before, about what climatologists call the late medieval warm period, which seems to have extended from about the 800s through the late Middle Ages and reached its peak probably in about the 1200s, corresponding with the height of medieval civilization, and then started to trail off little by little through the 14 and especially in the 1500s. In the 1600s, the climate became really markedly and noticeably colder than it is today and, and than it had been through most of the medieval era. And in retrospect, scientists call the 1600s the Little Ice Age. So if we look at charts of proxies for temperature taken from ice cores or from tree rings, we can see a significant drop in temperatures starting around 1550 or 1560, deepening and reaching a significant low point after 1600, probably getting to its, its lowest depth in about the 1640s, so right in that period of highest conflict and, and instability. And then slowly in the late 1600s began to recover, but through the 1700s and even into the early 1800s remained a bit colder than it is now until it finally leveled off and reached a new plateau in the mid-1800s. So that whole era from the late 1500s to about 1830 or so, where we see really definitely colder climate, this is what we call the Little Ice Age. And this is probably really the biggest reason for this period of 
hardship, and comparative chaos that we call the general crisis of the 17th century. During the Little Ice Age, we can see that alpine glaciers and glaciers on other mountains in northern Europe reached a much greater extent. Entire towns and villages that used to be thriving communities in the Middle Ages were eventually buried in snow and then basically bulldozed over by growing glaciers. Canals and rivers that were rarely ever frozen over before, like the canals in the Netherlands or the Thames River in England, actually froze over. And we can still today see scenes of people skating up and down these deep frozen waterways that we practically never see frozen over today. Even sometimes sea channels that had never frozen over before in in known memory and never have since also sometimes froze over with ice flows in the mid-1600s. And in the year 1658, the Swedish army was able to invade Denmark and attack the Danish capital of Copenhagen directly because the sea channel between Sweden and Denmark completely froze over, firmly enough for the entire Swedish army to march across it in the so-called Campaign of the Belts in 1658. So people in this era knew that something was different and they knew that they didn't have clear or easy ways to cope with it. So the deepening cold actually began, as I said, by no later than the 1560s. And we can see writers and artists even at that early time starting to take note that winters were getting more deeply cold than they had been before. And artists like Bruegel began producing more scenes of snow, ice, of people hunting as a food source in these severe winters, people having to build bonfires, burn furniture or other available material to keep warm. So this was a new source of hardship, but it wasn't necessarily that dangerous. It was survivable so long as it only affected the winters. And as long as there was still a long, warm, fairly dry summer, then crucial crops like wheat and other grains could still be produced sufficiently to feed the population. And other food sources could be found, other sources of of lumber for firewood could be accessed. And so all in all, it wasn't necessarily a real life-threatening crisis. This began to change in 1589 to 1590. So in that year, in the autumn of 1589, long, severe rains struck Italy, especially central and northern Italy. And this was unusual for that time of year in a Mediterranean climate. And they continued through the winter and even into the following spring. And the crop yield in 1589 was greatly diminished and then was almost ruined by these rains and by cold, wet weather through the year 1590. So this rolling series of crop failures led to a famine in many parts of Italy that lasted for several years in the early 1590s. And although they began to recover and take in good harvests again in the mid-1590s, crop failures struck again in 1596 and in 1598. 
and new problems and diseases like a fungus called wheat rust that killed large amounts of wheat in the wet, cloudy weather began to spread beyond Italy and into other parts of Europe. So food shortages and even famines began to break out in Central and Northern Europe in the late 1590s and continued periodically after 1600. When I speak of a crop failure, this doesn't necessarily mean total destruction of the entire crop. It can more often just mean that the harvest is diminished, whether by low yields or by disease, such that one isn't able to gather in in the autumn significantly more than one planted in the spring. So all the work and all the time and energy that one put into farming through the year ends up not benefiting you with any more food than you began with. And these sorts of crop failures don't necessarily always lead to famine. There are other recourses that one can turn to, but several of them in a row affecting large areas can lead to famine. And we see this happening in the early 1590s and then again repeatedly and more and more frequently through the 1600s. People could cope through changing what sort of crops they grew, right? So one might change over from grains like wheat to vegetables or fruits that grow more steadily in rainy or cloudy weather. But the yields from these crops might be less than one was able to gather before. Some lands might simply become unusable, like from flooding and muddy soil or from the spread of snow and ice. And additionally, if one did successfully move over to other crops, these other crops like vegetables or mushrooms might not be as easy to store and preserve as grain. They might be more perishable and hence you could still end up at some later point running out of edible food or you might be unable to sell food and send it through the market to towns and cities that needed these imports of grain. So the increasing crop failures led to shortages of food, to spiking prices of basic staple foods like bread, and we see increasingly frequent bread riots in towns and cities around Europe after 1600. And these were particularly a problem in towns where you had large concentrations of people who really were dependent on these abundant harvests. So if you were in the countryside, you might have recourse to other food sources. You might, even if your crops completely failed across the board, you might be able to gather wild fruits or mushrooms. You might be able to hunt or poach in the woods if you weren't forbidden from doing so. You might be able to fish. You might be able to slaughter livestock that you already had on hand, dairy, cows, goats, even pack animals like horses or oxen if you were really desperate. So there were other ways that you could keep yourself fed, whereas in a town you really didn't have this variety of options. You had to be able to buy affordable 
imports of foods from the countryside on a regular basis. And so these bread riots were very dangerous because they could lead to violence. Uh, people might attack stores or granaries. They might turn against the authorities whom they held responsible for not keeping bread prices down. And they could actually lead to breakdowns of law and order and sometimes even to wide-scale rebellions or revolutions. So this crisis, as you can see, of diminished crop yields and frequent crop failures led to a wave not only of, of hardship, but also of dangerous disorder and destabilization of political systems and even of entire states. So how exactly did this happen in practice? Well, if we look at the 17th century from a distance, we can see frequent wars that often involved both interstate conflict and internal strife within kingdoms and empires at the same time. So the largest example of this, which you may have heard of, is the Thirty Years' War, which broke out in the Holy Roman Empire in 1618 and lasted, of course, as the name implies, for 30 years until 1648. I won't get too deeply into the details of the Thirty Years' War just now because I'll probably talk about this and other wars later when I discuss Central Europe and France and, and other specific places. But the Thirty Years' War clearly stemmed from both of these two causes that I already talked about. It was, on the one hand, a religious war. It was triggered when the Kingdom of Bohemia, which was one of the realms within the Holy Roman Empire, had a vacant throne, and instead of choosing a Catholic Habsburg as their next ruler, as they had done for generations at this point, sort of deferring to the power and influence of the premier Catholic dynasty in Europe. Instead, they held a meeting of the estates and chose Frederick the Elector Palatine to be their next king, who was a reformed Protestant ruler of a principality in the empire called the Palatinate. So they invited Frederick of Palatine to Bohemia to take up the throne, and this not only outraged the Habsburgs, but it united the various Catholic powers around the Holy Roman Empire and even abroad who were afraid of the growing power of these Protestant princes. And they attacked Bohemia and triggered a kind of cascading domino effect war where Catholic and Protestant states leapt in and escalated this war further and further until it became practically a consuming conflagration that killed somewhere between about six and eight million people. So a death toll on the same basic order of magnitude as the Holocaust. And really laid waste to almost all of West Central Germany, as well as consuming goods, people, money, resources from all over Central Europe, involving France, Sweden, Denmark, England and Scotland, Spain, and really threatened to pull all of Europe into a sort of vortex of endless war. It also was in some respects, a war over food, 
okay, who would control the key areas of Central Europe that were still able to produce significant amounts of grain. So if you were going to mobilize large armies to engage in this sort of huge consuming regional war, you had to be able to feed them, and hence certain areas like Alsace, in the Holy Roman Empire in, in what's now France. This was a predominantly Protestant region at that time, and it was heavily attacked and ravaged by Catholic states who not only wanted to suppress another potential Protestant enemy, but also who wanted the food supply that could still be extracted from this fertile region. So it was a severe, brutal war, a war that crossed all sorts of lines and boundaries, both of, of the laws of war and of regions and religion. And it was brutal because it was both a war for religion and a war for food at the same time. And in, in this way, it's really exemplary of, of the horrors of the general crisis of the 17th century. At the same time that the Thirty Years' War was going on, the Eighty Years' War in the Netherlands was continuing. So I mentioned this before, the Dutch Protestant Estates General launched a war of independence against Spain in the 1560s, and it continued and similarly led to massacres, pillaging, uh, destruction of towns on both sides basically concentrated in the border area between the independent Dutch provinces and the Spanish-ruled Catholic Netherlands. And it also was only resolved in 1648 as part of this huge diplomatic effort to wrap up the Thirty Years' War. Spain also eventually recognized and accepted the independence of the Dutch provinces in 1648. Now, when both of these conflicts ended, thousands of soldiers then had to be decommissioned and somehow sent back home. And one of the major powers that had been involved in these wars was France. And so as thousands of French troops were decommissioned and sent back into France, they found themselves going back into a country where even though they had fought and served in the army, they couldn't afford food, nor could they afford land. So these double hardships that had built up over the price revolution of the 1500s and then this food shortage of the 1600s compounded one another, and you had discontented ex-soldiers mutinying, rioting and forming sort of rebel bands and turning against local authorities. Other powers within France, including the regional parliaments that represented towns and nobles, joined together with these sort of brigand armies roaming around the French countryside and launched an attempted revolution against King Louis XIV, who at that time was just a young unseasoned ruler and had given power over the country mainly to his main advisor, Cardinal Mazarin. And so we saw a kind of game of whack-a-mole with Louis and Cardinal Mazarin's government trying to put down these sort of unstoppable rebellions breaking out around France. And miraculously, they were eventually able to regain control of the country in 1653. So in this way, we can see that even when certain wars 
like the Thirty Years' War, were resolved, the conditions of the time could lead to simply more internal conflicts breaking out. And a somewhat similar pattern happened in England, where we have King Charles I in the 1630s trying to levy new taxes in order to fund his wars, and this led eventually to an outbreak of civil war in England, where forces supporting the king faced off against forces supporting parliament and had to, again, play a kind of game of chasing the enemies around the different regions of the country until eventually, in this case, Parliament ended up consolidating control and overthrowing and eventually executing King Charles I. This then led to a period without a king, which has been called the interregnum, although that's sort of a loaded term usually used by critics. But there was about a 10-year interregnum in the 1650s, which eventually gave way to a restoration of the monarchy in 1660. And this English Civil War, like the Thirty Years' War and like the Eighty Years' War, it also was partly a religious war. It had a religious dimension. So Charles I was a high church Anglican who also happened to be married to a Catholic. He was intensely resented and distrusted by Puritans who wanted to see a more purely reformed Church of England and also by Scottish Presbyterians, so Calvinists who supported the Calvinist state church in Scotland and who joined together with the English Parliament to oppose Charles I. So this is all very complicated. I'm not going to get more into those details. I'll talk about that later in another lecture when I deal specifically with England, which is a whole complex world unto itself. And I might do one or two or maybe several lectures about England in this era. But suffice it to say that there were religious inflections to all of these wars and conflicts. They also were intense struggles over control of resources, especially food and the money needed to buy and transport food. And all of them led to spin-off conflicts and wars sort of reverberating across the continent. And there are other wars, wars between France and Spain, wars within Spain over Catalan independence, and all kinds of uprisings, mutinies, skirmishes, really popping up all over on a scale beyond what we would have seen at least back to the 1300s, if not possibly all the way back to the Dark Age, really, arguably. But nonetheless, it takes a lot of gradual piecing together to see that this is the pattern, right? Before about the 1950s, no one, it seems, noted in any sort of formal academic context that this was clearly the overarching story of the 17th century and that it had these religious and economic roots to it, right? It, it takes generations of fitting together the pieces of the puzzle to see this big picture. In addition to this wave of wars and rebellions that culminated especially intensely in the mid-1600s, there also was a long wave of disease outbreaks. So various infectious diseases that prey upon weakened populations, undernourished populations, made a resurgence 
in the 1600s, such as smallpox and especially bubonic plague. So the first enormous outbreak of plague, at least in medieval Europe, was in the 1340s, right, and, and rolled through Europe through the 1350s. There then were periodic outbreaks again over the decades of the late 1300s and the 1400s, but they gradually diminished for various reasons, one of which was better strategies of combating the spread of the plague by targeting rodents and fleas, and also through the strategy of quarantine, which was invented in Venice, of, pure, of putting people in isolation while they were recovering from the disease so they didn't spread it to other people. And in various ways, the incidence of the plague reached a new low in the 1500s. But outbreaks increased again in the 1600s, both because of the weakened populations and also because of this frequent warfare, which brought together thousands of men in army camps, which are perfect breeding grounds for these crowd diseases. And we see a resurgence of outbreaks of the plague in Italy through all through the mid and late 1600s, and also the largest outbreak of the plague in England in centuries, which took place in London. So there was a tremendous outbreak in London in 1665, which has been called the Great Visitation. And it was fueled in large part by these tremendous crowds of people coming into London from the countryside who had been dispossessed of their land tenures or who had been expelled from common lands and had to try to survive in London. So this was a perfect environment for infectious disease. And a large portion, probably over a third of the population of the city died in the Great Visitation. Naturally, many people consolidated in from neighborhoods or streets that had been depopulated and largely abandoned. People withdrew into new consolidated neighborhoods, thus leaving large areas simply empty. And this created a fire hazard, as we would say today. And the following year in 1666, the Great Fire broke out and swept through and destroyed most of central London. So in this way, conflict, disease, and other disasters like fire and famine could feed one on the other. And at certain times, people felt that they were probably witnessing the apocalypse, right? A lot of art and literature from this time uses imagery of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, famine, pestilence, war, and oppression. In this environment, people, of course, looked for responses to try to restore some sense of order and stability to the world. These responses were sometimes practical and sometimes ideological. So on the practical side, some governments undertook internal improvements to try to increase food production and to facilitate the transport of food in order to relieve hunger and famine. A large example of this was the campaign of canal building in France, which facilitated the transport of food and goods. Also, the draining of the fens in England. So a large area of East Anglia in England used to be unusable Martian swamp. And there was a large project to build dikes and drain 
this area to make it into fertile, productive land. And projects like this could have some mitigating effect. But of course, the sort of food stability that had been known earlier in the Middle Ages could only be achieved again after the end of the Little Ice Age. Also, colonization overseas was another practical response, which often was spearheaded by some of the same people who oversaw canal building, road building, and the draining of the fens and projects like this. So other European powers, apart from Spain and Portugal, really began attempting colonization in earnest after 1600. There had been a few sort of brief forays and temporary outposts set up on a few occasions in the 1500s, like Sable Island and Roanoke Island. But after 1600, Northern European powers began to take more seriously the idea of colonization, and we see the creation of New France, a a permanent French colony, in North America in 1605. It began at Port Royal in what's now Nova Scotia and what the French called the colony of Acadia, and then extended further in to the St. Lawrence Seaway and created the colony that they called Canada. But all of these French colonies were loosely collectively called New France. Just two years after Port Royal, we see the English founding of Jamestown in the Chesapeake area. This grew into the colony of Virginia. So Jamestown itself was a really barely successful tiny outpost that almost collapsed on several occasions, but eventually, after about 1615, Virginia did start to grow and flourish as a tobacco colony. The colonization of New England, as we call it now, started in 1620 with the Plymouth Colony and then massively accelerated with the Puritan colonization of Massachusetts Bay in 1630. And then Northern European colonization of the Caribbean began with St. Kitts, or as it was originally called St. Christopher's in the Caribbean starting in 1624. And that island was colonized by both the English and the French at different sites. And then soon after, other English colonies were founded at Barbados and several other islands. All of these colonial endeavors were, in a sense, public-private partnerships. All of them received some sort of patronage and protection from the crown of England or France, as well as private investment. And England led the way in this respect with the creation of joint stock companies, basically the forerunners of what we today consider corporations. These were designed to raise private money to create colonies which would produce lucrative goods, ideally gold, or else cash crops, and would create networks for trade around the Atlantic Basin and flow wealth back into the European homelands. Also in France, we see companies set up like the Company of the Indies and the Company of the West, some of which saw some success and others of which would basically form bubbles and later collapse. So the sort of cycle of of frenzied, overinflated, overvalued companies that 
then sometimes uh, collapse and people lose their savings. This also was pioneered in the 1600s as an outgrowth of this colonization project. Now, why was colonization a practical response to this crisis of the 17th century? Well, because when crop yields diminished and food was short and you had people rioting in the street demanding access to food, one of the obvious things that governments hoped they could do with these people was somehow just get them out of the country. Right? Ship out these people who don't have usable land, who aren't able to feed themselves, who don't have enough money to deal with food shortages and spikes in prices of bread. Just get them out somewhere else where they can produce food and support themselves. So some of these colonies, like New England, were very effective at setting up their own food supplies and becoming effectively independent on their own economic footing apart from the mother country, at least for a time. Whereas others like Virginia served basically as dumping grounds for excess population that the home country didn't want. So if you had people on the street, people you labeled as vagrants, people who might be rebelling or rioting, you could imprison them, arrest them, find some sort of legal justification to send them out to the colonies as indentured servants, in, in quotes, basically as forced laborers who might, at least after a term of service, have some sort of formal chance at eventually becoming free people, although most of them never even reached that point, right? Life in the colonies was dangerous, uh, the work was backbreaking, the disease environment was lethal, and so most of them, especially in the Caribbean colonies, simply died within a few years and never saw freedom. So in a way, you could see these colonies as almost kind of death camps for just uh, sentencing unwanted population to death. And this happened to vagrant, uh, destitute people, and also to subjects in internally colonized territories like Ireland, right? A lot of the indentured servants sent to work in these colonies were Irish Catholics who simply, in one way or another, tried to resist English rule or resist their English landlords or masters. So colonization, although, you know, we, especially in America, look back to it as this kind of glorious enterprise that led to the new nation and to various new nations really spanning the Americas, at the time, they were really kind of sinks for getting rid of people who were squeezed out by this general crisis of the 17th century. These practical responses, like internal improvements and colonization, often also had an ideological kind of veneer to them. They could be caught up in new ideological trends and enthusiasms of people trying to somehow create a philosophical response to the intractable division and the constant conflict and suffering that they saw around them in the 1600s. So one of the root causes of the crisis, as I said, was 
the failure to resolve the Catholic-Protestant dispute in any decisive way. In this environment of intractable and unending disagreement, people tried to appeal to sources of authority that might be somehow able to settle or adjudicate these endless disputes. And the most obvious place to turn was the Bible, right? So Protestants considered scripture to be the ultimate authority on matters of doctrine, and the Catholic Church also considered scripture to be authoritative, although they considered it to be alongside church tradition. But both sides saw importance and sanctity in the words of scripture and turned to the Bible as a possible source of final agreement and final answers to their doctrinal questions and disputes. And interest in the Bible, intensive study of the Bible, really increased in the 1600s beyond any previous era in Christian history. And historians today sometimes call the 17th century the biblical century. This is the time when scholars made the most frequent and obsessive citations of the Bible, when there was a renewal of scholarship in Greek and Hebrew in order to analyze the Bible in its original languages. And when we look at the philosophy of the time, even in supposedly secular matters like the history of the earth, geology, the history of life and biology, we see philosophers turning to the Bible as the basic template. Uh, people like Athanasius Kircher trying to explain geology and the nature of the earth in terms of the great flood or the trial of Galileo. So Galileo was a devout Catholic. He also was a supporter of the Copernican theory of the cosmos, that the planets revolve around the sun. Uh, I'll talk about that more later. You've probably heard of Galileo and his ideas. When he was accused of violating Catholic teachings by his support of the Copernican theory, the argument against him was not that he was overthrowing Ptolemy. So Ptolemy was the accepted authority on astronomy and the cosmos all through the Middle Ages. But the objection that the church and the Holy Office made to Galileo was that he was contradicting the Bible. And there were passages of the Bible that's, that speak of the sun moving and the sun rising and setting. And so they saw his doctrines as being unbiblical. And this is a reflection of how even the Catholic Church really became more firmly biblical literalist than it had ever been before. And both sides hoped that a correct reading of the Bible, especially in its original languages, would reveal the correct pure doctrines of Christianity. Now, this, of course, didn't happen because, as you probably know, there is an infinite myriad of ways of interpreting the Bible. And rather than leading to consensus, instead we see a, a proliferation of different schools of biblical analysis and biblical interpretation through the 1600s. Also, even in politics, we see an increasing trend in the 1600s 
in, especially in Northern Europe, of philosophers trying to formulate a correct government system based on the Bible, and especially often arguing for a republic on the basis that the Old Testament books of Judges and Samuel that describe the ancient Israelite kingdom actually condemn monarchy as a proper form of government and instead call for a sort of holy covenanted republic. And this line of thinking was used by the Dutch provinces, by English republicans during the English Civil War and interregnum, by some Italian scholars, and by colonists in America. Alongside this increasing biblicism, there was also a strong strain of apocalypticism. So, as I said, the conditions of the 17th century led many people to think that they were actually witnessing the end times, and that soon the world as they knew it would be destroyed and a new age would be ushered in. So a kind of millennialism and apocalypticism was very common. Many philosophers subscribed to this, and also some ordinary people, literate, semi-literate, illiterate uh, men and women, subscribed to apocalyptic prophetic ideas. The prophecies in the book of Daniel, which describe the world going through five eras under five monarchies, were very commonly discussed, analyzed, and applied to current events. So in the book of Daniel, we see a prophecy describing the sort of degeneration of the world through four ages under four different monarchies, which may have been based on actual historical empires that the author of the book knew, such as the Assyrians and the Romans. And then it prophecies a fifth monarchy, a sort of final empire, which will prepare the way for the second coming and judgment day. And when these conflicts broke out in France during the Fronde, and especially in England during the English Civil War, many people believed that this was the closing of the fourth monarchy and the ushering in of a fifth monarchy, a sort of new divine rule. And you'll see the phrase fifth monarchy men often used in documents from England and the English colonies in the 1600s to refer to people who saw these political upheavals in these apocalyptic terms. There also was widespread interest in prophecies concerning the prophet Elijah, whom both Jews and some Christians believed would eventually return and usher in either the second coming or the Messiah. And a great deal of natural philosophers, people whom we might think of today as scientists, like chemists or astronomers, actually subscribed to these Elijah prophecies and would refer to a figure that they called Elias Artista, or Elijah the Craftsman, who would be a sort of new form of the prophet Elijah, who would return not only to usher in the apocalypse, but also to reveal the hidden secrets of nature. So, as I'll talk about more later, this kind of burgeoning interest in understanding the body, in understanding the, the sky and the cosmos, was often fueled 
by the belief that this project of uncovering the hidden secrets of nature was also preparatory for the apocalypse, and hence the enthusiasm for natural philosophy and experimentation often broke out strongly during times of conflict, like the English Civil War and the Thirty Years' War. Another related school of thought that built on apocalypticism and on the Elias Artista prophecies was pan-Sophism. So the notion that before the apocalypse could happen, all knowledge from all over the world had to be gathered together in one place, and that there had to be some sort of group or institution created in the world in order to assemble all knowledge and prepare the way for sort of final revelation, the final unveiling that is the apocalypse. This pan-Sophism first gained a wide and popular audience pretty early on during the Rosicrucian sensation that started in 1607. So in, in 1607, a series of pamphlets was printed in Germany claiming to be authored by a secretive group called the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross. And this brotherhood was supposedly secret and invisible in their words. It's unclear whether this means figuratively invisible because their identities are secret or actually literally invisible, like people can't see them. And they claimed to have access to ancient documents and prophecies that had been stowed away by a philosopher named Christian Rosenkreutz or Christian, the Christian with a rose heart, and that he had gained some sort of secret mystical knowledge from the East that now had been recovered by the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross, and that they would soon reveal themselves and lead the Protestant party to ultimate victory over the Catholic enemies using the secrets of nature and the basically the power of God, and that this final triumph of Protestantism would be the first step in a judgment day of some sort. So the Rosicrucian sensation sort of ushered in this long pan-sophist era where people kept attempting in one way or another to create the correct kind of secretive, powerful group or network that would put together the necessary knowledge to win and end the conflict between Catholics and Protestants and usher in either an apocalypse or a fifth monarchy of some kind. Pan-Sophists often engaged in alchemy, angel communication, astrology, and increasingly Kabbalah, which is a mystical numerological tradition in Judaism. So all of these philosophies promoted the idea that there was some sort of hidden mystical knowledge that at the same time could be used to harness and manipulate the hidden powers of the earth and of nature. This sort of pan-sophist network was spread all over Europe, but it became especially strong and developed in three countries in particular. And those are Bohemia, 
Sweden and England. So you might remember Bohemia is the country that triggered the Thirty Years' War when they invited Frederick of Palatine to come and take up the throne. They saw themselves as a kind of messianic country, especially as leaders of the Protestant cause against the forces of the Antichrist, which is what they considered the Catholic Church to be, at least the most zealous leaders of this Protestant crusade. In Sweden, we see similar ideas arising, and Sweden was particularly significant because it was the main source of iron in Europe, and hence there were many engineers and alchemists who went to Sweden in order to work in the mining industry, and they brought with them these sort of alchemical ideas of uncovering the hidden powers of the earth. Some of them were influenced by Rosicrucianism or by other older alchemical and astrological schools of thought. They seem to have inspired Queen Christina of Sweden, who was queen in the mid-1600s, right in the midst of this conflict, and who took up the throne and came to believe that she had a special role to play in these coming end times and apocalypse. And as a result, she abdicated her throne and converted to Catholicism. She saw it as sort of her role to bridge the gap and to reform Catholicism. But she brought to her court, while she was on the throne, she brought alchemists, mathematicians, astrologers, and all sorts of philosophers into her court, including among them René Descartes, and she was the main patron of Descartes for the last few years of his life. He apparently didn't take well to this Swedish uh, climate. But there was a lot of exchange, exchange of books, exchange of ideas, of people between Sweden and Bohemia, and also to England. So an important Swedish uh, philosopher uh, from this alchemical sort of network was Samuel Hartlib, and he ended up sort of having to flee through various countries in Europe, and he ended up settling in England during the interregnum, where he put together an informal circle of philosophers that scholars call the, the Hartlib Circle. And this Hartlib Circle first began taking more concrete steps towards forming what they called an invisible college, a sort of underground network of philosophers who would work on gathering all knowledge. This invisible college, we don't know a lot about it. It was very intentionally and effectively mysterious. We don't know exactly who the members were. It's clear that it included some people like the chemist Robert Boyle, who also was an alchemist and an angel communicator. But these ideas did come to fruition and sort of came out into the open after the Restoration in 1660, when Boyle and several of these friends who had been part of the Hartlib Circle founded the Royal Society, which was an organization dedicated to the sharing and publication of natural philosophical knowledge. So in a sense, the Invisible College went public, you might say, and they did so for the first time with royal support. So there was emerging of this kind of new stabilizing monarchical order with this enthusiastic apocalyptic quest for the pansophic knowledge of the world.
This pan-Sophism also came to fruition in other ways that spread beyond beyond just the elite circles of philosophers and scientists. One of these was in the rebuilding of London. So as I said, London largely burned down in the Great Fire of 1666, and it was a tremendous question how the city should be rebuilt. And the initial proposals that the royally appointed designers put forward were actually to create a new network of avenues that would mimic the Kabbalistic tree of life and would sort of channel the invisible life-giving powers of the sun and the sky through these avenues of London. And in this way, we can see that people who were trying to cope with and rebuild from these disasters of the 17th century saw themselves as taking part in this kind of mystical quest for the apocalypse and the end times. This plan didn't come to fruition not in its entirety, because there are very strong property laws in England, and basically the owners of lots around London were able to quickly go back to their burnt-out lots and start rebuilding, and the government was not able to dispossess them in order to level the ruins of the city and build this new street network. And instead, the city was rebuilt largely along the same street plan, sort of messy <laughs> street plan that had existed before, and which mostly still exists today. What did end up coming to more concrete, permanent fruition was education reform. So philosophers from Sweden and Bohemia, such as Jan Komenius, were able to get commissions to oversee the creation of new public schools and universities. And Comenius first undertook this in Sweden, and then he was imitated in England and other uh, allied countries. And you saw the creation of new public-supported grammar schools and colleges, the expansion of existing universities. And for the first time, it became common to believe that the entire public should be educated. And initially, this was not just for the sake of economic productivity, although that was part of the picture. It was also inspired by this notion that if all knowledge was disseminated throughout the world, then the kind of world of conflict and disease that they had known would be overcome and would be replaced by a new fifth monarchy or millennium of peace. And in a sense, this kind of apocalyptic messianic hope, you could say still suffuses education today and, and the notion that in a more secular sense, education will lead to a better world and will lead to permanent peace. So as I said, there was an increasing interest and increasing work put into studying the Bible in its original languages including Hebrew. And this project led to a new sort of Jewish-Christian exchange, which I think I spoke about some in my lecture about the Jews of Europe in the early modern era. But many philosophers, including a lot of teachers at these growing universities and these new schools being set up, turned to the Jewish population for knowledge about the Old Testament, both the Hebrew language and traditional Jewish interpretation of the New Testament. So one of the new sort of schools of thought that really grew dramatically at this time in 
how to interpret the Bible was to start with Jewish interpretations from Jews who had a historical and textual tradition running back to ancient Judea. So scholars studied the not only the Torah, but also the Talmud, the Mishnah, traditional Jewish commentaries by the great scholars like Maimonides or Rashi, and also the mystical traditions of Mirkaba and Kabbalah. And this inspired not only new ideas about how to understand the Bible, but also new interest in Jewish messianism. And there came to be a kind of merging of this Christian apocalyptic hope with Jewish anticipation of the Messiah. And we see certain philosophers like Isaac La Perere in the Netherlands actually arguing that the Jewish Messiah and the second coming are the same thing, that the sort of next coming of Christ would be another Jew who would bring redemption both to Israel and to the rest of the world in at the same time as part of the same sort of miracle. And this sort of messianic anticipation led both Jews and Gentiles to start kind of looking in anxious ways for possible signs of who this Messiah would be, who would end this age of conflict and division. And eventually the person who ended up stepping into this role, as I've mentioned before in my lecture about Jews, was Sabbatai Zvi, a rabbi in the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans, who inspired his followers to believe that he was the Messiah and who started to gain supporters and adherents in Central and Western Europe too. And there was a kind of semi-secret wave of enthusiasm for Sabbatai Zvi that we today call Sabbateanism. And it was embraced by many Jewish congregations, not only by ordinary people, but even by rabbis and scholars, and also increasingly by enthusiastic, apocalyptic, and mystical Christians who believed that he was both the Messiah and the second coming of Christ. And this movement reached a crest in 1666, so in the same year as the Great Fire in London, and it really only had cold water thrown on it after Sabbatai was arrested by Ottoman authorities and under pressure converted to Islam. So this is a another complicated story. I talked about it some before, but the Sabbatai movement sort of had the wind taken out of its sails, but it didn't entirely disappear. It continued as a kind of underground oppositional movement, especially among Jews, on through the 1600s and into the 1700s, and was part of the background for what became the Hasidic movement in the 1700s. So in all of these ways, we see a sort of outbreak of, of hope and fervent expectation for some sort of divine intervention to overthrow the world as people saw it in the 1640s, 50s, and 60s. And many of them were disappointed, like the Sabbatai Tzvi movement. And many of these projects, like colonization, in the Americas that people hoped would bring on a messiah or an apocalypse also 
failed to produce the desired results. And over time, people had to look more and more for ways to deal with conditions as they saw them and simply ride them out until something changed. And so as the crisis goes on through the mid and late 1600s, the idea of simply coexistence and toleration gains some ground. It was never the majority view, and it was never the official view of any state or any church that different religions should be tolerated or that total freedom of conscience should be allowed, with a couple of very small exceptions, which I'll mention. But it did start to gain some hearing in the public square, especially in Northern Europe, in places like England, the English colonies, the Netherlands, the Dutch colonies, in these places where there was a sort of unaccountable, unstoppable variety of religious views and groups that seemed to be impossible to put a lid on. So one early episode that actually saw an argument for outright toleration for particular theological reasons was Roger Williams and the creation of Rhode Island. So Roger Williams was an English Puritan minister, basically in the familiar Puritan mold, which was common in central and eastern England in the 1600s. And I'll, I'll talk more later about exactly what the Puritans were and what they argued. But to make a long story short, they were simply members of the Church of England who wanted to see the church become more of a strictly reformed church, more along the lines of Calvin's church in Geneva or Zurich. And many of them, of course, were dissatisfied with the direction that the Church of England took in the 1600s, and many of them emigrated to the colonies in America, especially the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was organized and founded by Puritans. So Roger Williams was simply one of these Puritan ministers. He went over in 1629. He briefly was a minister at Salem and then went uh, to other pulpits in the colony. And he started to go off the reservation, in a sense, in that he made two arguments. One, that the Massachusetts Bay Charter that it had received from the Crown was invalid because the Native Americans were the rightful owners of that land in America, not the King of England. And so hence, they should not claim any sort of right to any land in America except what was granted to them by the Native Americans. So that was politically problematic, and he argued for what he called soul liberty, the right to choose one's own beliefs without being coerced. And his reason for this was religious and theological. It was not that there was some inherent human right to believe or think whatever you want. Rather, it was that true belief and true Christian commitment could only come from sincere faith, and hence it could not be forced. If you used state power or even social power to 
coerce people into worshiping in a certain manner or into subscribing to certain doctrines, then all you would be doing is forcing people to take on a false mask. And so he argued against any sort of laws forcing any kind of religious observance, whether it was church attendance or observance of the Sabbath. And these ideas got him into huge trouble. He was questioned by the ministers of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he was almost deported back to England, but instead was able to escape and went out of the territory of Massachusetts Bay into what's now Rhode Island, where with the help and cooperation of Narragansett Indian allies, he created the Providence Plantations Colony that later then grew into Rhode Island. And Rhode Island from the founding followed a policy of separation of church and state, although that's not how they would phrase it at that time, so it's it's anachronistic. But they instituted rules protecting what Williams called soul liberty. So the state could not interfere in what church a person attended or didn't attend, what doctrines they subscribed to, whether they observed the Sabbath or gambling or heresy or witchcraft or blasphemy. None of these sorts of laws and rules that were familiar all throughout the English Empire were enforced in Rhode Island. And partly for that reason, we see people whose ideas were persecuted or condemned in other colonies like Anne Hutchinson going to Rhode Island. We saw people who were suspected or accused of witchcraft also fleeing to Rhode Island because there were no laws around witchcraft in Rhode Island. And basically something like what we would today call a tolerant society existed in Rhode Island, although people certainly were not treated equally under social custom. And the reason for it, again, was not based in modern ideas about natural rights or natural liberty, but rather were based in the strict reformed Protestant doctrines that Roger Williams propounded and his interpretation of Reformed Protestantism, that observance had to grow out of faith. It could not be used to inculcate faith in Christian teachings. So Roger Williams himself did harshly condemn people with other religious views like Quakers and believed that they were probably condemned to hell, but he did not believe that it was in any way useful to use force or force of law or even undue social pressure to force them to change their views. It had to be a sincere change. Williams actually had a little bit of influence back in England, not very much. He did write pamphlets and sent them back to England advocating for religious toleration and for the readmission of Jews and other religious groups into England that hadn't previously been allowed to live there. And he helped to contribute to the creation of a tolerant regime under the English Commonwealth. So I won't get into the details again, but basically after the English Civil War, when Parliament took control of the country and the king was executed, a new regime was set up under parliamentary rule, which was called the Commonwealth, and then later the Protectorate under Oliver Cromwell. And the Commonwealth government abolished censorship, 
and allowed free expression of religious ideas and free association of new churches. And new churches were formed on Presbyterian or congregational bases. There also were many independents, people who floated around to various self-organized church groups that were not associated with the official Church of England. And you see a kind of uh, outbreak of religious ferment and, in the views of some, religious chaos during this Commonwealth period, which the Restoration government then tried, at least partially, to put a lid on again after 1660. And this uh, experiment with toleration under the Commonwealth, again, it was not justified by reference to enlightenment or modern theories about natural rights, you know, that just wasn't really seen as related to religious issues at the time. Rather, it was a policy they resorted to because it was so difficult for people involved in this new regime to come to any sort of agreement. It was so difficult for this new regime to deal with the proliferation not only of Puritanism and new Puritan groups, but also with these highly enthusiastic fifth monarchists and apocalypticists and political rebels like levelers who sometimes also made reference to apocalyptic religious ideas. It just didn't seem feasible to create any sort of consensus. And so as a matter of at least temporary policy, they simply drew back and took their hands out of the religious realm. And similarly in the Netherlands and in Central Europe. So the Netherlands, once it established itself as a separate republic outside of Spanish rule, it created an official reformed church, right? So there was an official Dutch Reformed Church in the Netherlands that technically everyone was supposed to belong to. But the Dutch government knew that there were still many Catholics in large parts of the country who would resist forcible conversion to Protestantism. They didn't have the resources or the will to really enforce conformity to the Reformed Church. They also saw an influx of refugees especially from Portugal, who went to the Netherlands and began to re-embrace Judaism and return to the Law of Moses, as they considered it. Now, this also was technically illegal, but the Dutch government knew that it simply wouldn't serve their practical purposes of stability, of trying to gain wealth through trade and colonization, if they forced out these reconverts or returnees to Judaism. And so, in effect, they allowed it to happen and allowed synagogues to be created and to practice basically so long as they weren't right on the main city square. And so we see many synagogues being built in cities like Middleburg and Amsterdam that were just slightly tucked away down a side street. And it was really the worst kept secret in Europe that a lot of these Portuguese and other people migrating into, into the Netherlands were Jews and were practicing Judaism. And not only that, but it also spread then to the Dutch colonies and then to England after 1655 when the Commonwealth government also chose to turn a blind eye and basically take no action against Jews migrating into England and finally into the English colonies. 
Also, within the Dutch Reformed Church, there were intense and acrimonious debates over how to understand Reformed doctrine. So the Dutch Reformed Church was largely, its doctrines were largely along Calvinist lines, right, predestinarian. But starting in the 1620s, a new party came forward, especially of elite people in high positions in government or the upper class, who advocated for a new interpretation of the faith, which was called Arminian, after uh, a Dutch theologian, Jacobus Arminius. And Arminianism held that it was possible for a person who was saved to lose their salvation. If they abandoned their faith or turned back towards sinfulness, they actually could lose their salvation. And hence, there was some degree of free will. A person could actually choose to adhere to the faith and to uh, to the gospel and maintain their salvation and actually, in that sense, earn eternal life, or they could fall away and lose it. And this was seen as anathema to more strictly Calvinist or, you might say, original Orthodox Reformed Protestants. And this is part of what spurred on the Synod of Dort as a sort of joint project of Reformed Protestants to define correct Orthodox teachings and reaffirm predestination. And many of these Arminians were condemned and expelled from the Netherlands. So in this way, the, the Dutch state was not as entirely tolerant as we might think in retrospect. It was sort of selectively and pragmatically tolerant. It took on disputes that it considered to be sort of existentially important, while strategically ignoring violations of religious law that it just didn't want to deal with. And the colony of New Netherlands that later became New York was, in a sense, the, the hotbed of this kind of Dutch laxity that became a sort of de facto tolerance, where you had Jews gathering, you had Lutherans, especially who had come in from Sweden and the Swedish colonies, you had underground Catholics, you had English Protestants of various sorts, Quakers, all kind of uh, fighting for space and managing to survive under the Dutch umbrella. More broadly, in the Holy Roman Empire, we, we know that the Holy Roman Empire, of course, is where the horrible, destructive Thirty Years' War mostly took place. And when that war finally ended, it was with a kind of stalemate with the various principalities within the empire agreeing to lay down their arms and allow the local rulers to choose the religion of their territories. So there was no final victory and there was no final uniform religious policy for the entire empire. Rather, in the Treaty of Westphalia, we see the principle put into effect that the ruler of a local realm will set the religious policy for themselves, whether they are Lutheran or Catholic, or in some cases, like in the Palatine, Reformed. And in some cases, some of these local rulers eventually chose to pursue a policy of toleration, sort of like the Netherlands or England in, in the Commonwealth era. But this was not 
based on a sort of overarching principle of toleration. It was simply based on the policy preferences, the interests, and the whims of rulers, what sort of religious doctrines or practices they chose to enforce or not enforce on their populations. So it was not, again, it was not the sort of policy that we would think of today as toleration, but it was, in a sense, a step in that direction. And all of these developments in the Holy Roman Empire, in the Netherlands, in England, in some of the English colonies, all of these over time set more and more of a precedent that some sort of coexistence was possible, at least within some bounds. And this then paved the way eventually for some philosophers like John Locke in his letter concerning toleration to start to argue for toleration as the correct normative state of affairs that societies should pursue, at least within certain limits. Right? So, so Locke more or less argues that all Protestants should be allowed to choose their own beliefs and choose their own church membership and practices. But this sort of doctrine only came as a kind of Johnny-come-lately, after, after toleration had already been put into practice in different ways, in different places, and for different practical reasons. So by 1700, we can see that the, the idea of toleration is starting to emerge and gain some limited traction, especially among ruling circles, among intellectual circles, who are concerned about how to manage society and how to try to get beyond this ongoing intractable conflict without the help of a divine intervention, which simply hadn't materialized. So in this way, we start to see the beginnings of a new modern mindset that will become slightly more accepted, broadly accepted, around different parts of Europe in the 1700s. But the kind of conflict that people were dealing with and that defined the, the crisis of the 17th century this would only really go away very slowly, really as the climate warmed. It's only as summers become long and warmer and drier again and crop yields become more dependable that the sort of disease, warfare, rioting, rebellion that was so endemic in the 17th century gradually abates. And we end up with an 18th century that is largely more stable and that sees the creation of more strong, stable dynastic states than existed in the 1600s. So I'll get to that later, but before I do, I'll talk more about what was happening in the 1600s and how these new developments in natural philosophy and in politics actually played out in specific groups and in specific countries. So I hope that you will keep listening. And again, in order to keep these lectures coming, I urge you to go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining. If you become a patron, whatever you contribute at any level, you'll have access to my patron-only lectures, including half of the myths of the month. So I hope you'll keep listening, and I'll be back soon. Thank you. Oh,